Welcome to the Motor City Hoops Podcast, your home for all things Detroit Pistons and NBA. Thank you for choosing Motor City Hoops, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Hoopheads, once you finish listening to this episode, be sure to check out the rest of the Hoopheads Podcast Network for even more great basketball content. Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the Motor City Hoops podcast. As always, I would like to encourage you to listen to episode 48, where I was joined by Matt Issa for the podcast's first all-mailbag episode. We had a great time answering and discussing a handful of questions that you guys submitted via Twitter or the Detroit Bad Boys website. We also got a chance to talk about talk to Matt about his amazing project, Quest for the Best, a podcast series breaking down the top 10 NBA players of all time, releasing soon. But you can check that out after today's episode because it is one you are going to love. I'm joined by the Detroit Pistons basketball historian and all-around basketball savant, Keith Black Trudeau. Keith, welcome back to the show and thank you for joining me. You're too kind. Thanks for having me back. No, every Keith is the guy when it comes to Pistons history, and um, as I'm about to say, hopefully sometime some NBA history as well. Um, Keith joined me for episode 35, guys, which turned into a two-part episode going through the history of the Pistons organization. If you have not listened to that episode, you have to go listen to that. We talked about how the organization started, the bad boys, the going-to-work Pistons. The problem was Keith is such a savant with this stuff and has such incredible insights and stories we didn't get through at all. So today I'm bringing him back to talk about the Till era. I also wanted to get his thoughts on what Troy Weaver did in the offseason, but we had the big breaking news. I don't know if it's big, but the breaking news of Sekou Dumbuya being traded on Friday. So we're going to start off with that. So Keith, just real quick. Sekou, along with Jalil Okafor, gets traded to the Nets for DeAndre Jordan and the four second-round picks and some cash considerations. What were your initial thoughts to this trade? Uh, uh, my, my initial thought was I, I have been of the opinion since the summer started that I don't think Sekou uh, Dumbuya was long for this uh, specific Pistons team. I, I, don't, I didn't see any evidence that uh, Dwayne Casey or Troy Weaver had any particular attachment to him. Uh, I, I wish him luck. I look. I'm of I'm of the opinion. I I don't want to give up on a first round pick ever uh, until at least three years. And Siku's only been in Detroit for two. But I'm not the guy that's in practice. I don't see what the coach and the GM are seeing. So if that is you know their conclusion that he's better off in a in another situation, then so be it. Yeah, so let me ask, because you brought up a good point. Like, at the end of the day, it comes down to what Weaver and Casey and and what they're seeing on a daily basis, which is things we don't see. You know, the, the motor with Sekou, the development with Sekou has been brought up, and we're not privy to a lot of that information. We don't know how hard he's working in the off time and, and all of that. But just for you, and you kind of brought it up there, you'd like to see three years for me, I wanted to see one more year of Sekou. I thought we had seen enough, not not necessarily the Pascal Siakam comparisons and those type of things, but I thought a rotational player, you know, a second unit guy. So did you still see things in Sekou just for you individually that you really would have liked to see another year from him in Detroit? 
on, on one hand, yeah. Well, I mean, not only he's only 20, despite going into his third season. There's that uh, a big body, really athletic, uh, moves well without the ball, as any Pistons fan will tell you. Um, as, as also most Pistons fan will tell you, he kind of vanishes when he's not involved. Uh, but here's my problem: the the roster is so much deeper than it was last season, and you can say, well. They didn't acquire a whole lot of uh, uh, big forwards, and that's true. But I, I think, uh, for instance, uh, Josh Jackson, who played mostly guard last season, he is definitely going to get moved up to compete at forward for forward minutes. And my problem, and I think was Troy Weaver's, re- probably if you asked him his reasoning as well, is I don't, I didn't see a path for for Siku Dumbuya to get minutes this season, you know, barring some kind of injury or, or trade or whatever. So I, I just didn't see a whole lot of opportunity for him to change anybody's mind a, a year from now, at which point, you know, I, I think his contract would hold a little bit less value. No, that's a great point. So I kind of, I was going to save that for an episode to get into it, but let's let's talk just a little bit about that. So wh- who do you think this opens up minutes for? Because, you know, the, the reports are, I don't know that if it's happened officially, it may have. Um, I had a wedding this weekend, so I haven't been quite as active on Twitter and everything, but DeAndre Jordan's going to get, it, DeAndre Jordan's not going to play for the Pistons this year. So who, where do those minutes go to? Do you see, you already brought up Josh Jackson. Um, I know some fans have talked about Isaiah Livers, but he's not even cleared as far as I know to play yet. Trey Lyles was brought in. I don't think that'll make fans happy. Um, it, it, do you see maybe some more minutes at the four for an Isaiah Stewart, maybe even Kelly Olynyk playing bigger? Like, I know, again, you said Josh Jackson. What else do you see in that spot? Because there are some minutes available now. Yeah, look, the... Uh... At first, I think uh, Trey Lyles, like him or not, and I, I don't really care for his game either, but I, I think he's going to get at least a look because he's the veteran. Uh, but going forward, I, I see a couple of, I, I see a few uh, different players that could uh, move in for that opportunity. Uh, Isaiah Livers, when he gets healthy, which I don't, like you said, I don't think he's been cleared yet. And even when he is, it's going to take him a while to probably get his uh, sea legs under him in the NBA. But he he, he fits the description. Uh, Josh Jackson, I think, will. I I, I think he's the probably the favorite uh, to grab some of those minutes. I think he would have gotten those anyway over over Siku just because of his defense and his intensity. Uh, yeah. what, what, one name that I do think uh, will benefit the most is uh, Luca Garza, because I think that there's a good chance that he gets converted uh just my opinion but i think there's a good chance he gets converted uh to full-time status and possibly uh jamarco pickett uh moves into that two vacated two-way spot but i i think more than anything especially because uh, jill okafor also went out with that deal so i think luca garza is probably the guy that should be the happiest right now because i think he's uh fairly close to getting a full-time contract in my opinion no I think that's a good point and that was actually um I actually was able to have a little bit of conversation with Rod Beard through uh DMs on Twitter there's a little group somebody a fan had asked you know was really asking him a question but I got included in the group chat for whatever reason and and Rod Beard actually brought that up like don't be surprised if two of these guys get moved um 
And then talking about what you just brought up, the Luca Garza, you know, pathway to an actual contract or actual roster spot and then pick it into a two-way spot. So it'll be interesting to see if we see that happen here over the coming days. Um, before we move on, I, there's just a couple other factors I want to ask about. One, just the return on the trade in general. That's been talked a little bit, you know, four second round picks. Everybody seems to have varying opinions on second round picks. Were you surprised by just the return? We're going to have to eat this DeAndre Jordan contract over this year and next year, or if they decide to stretch it. Um, what, what, what did you just think about the return in the, in the trade? I, initially, I was kind of uh, surprised that the Pistons could get four second rounders for Sikunabuya, but yeah, like you said, as I as I thought about it a little bit, they they're not just getting the picks for Siku, uh, they're also getting the picks for eating DeAndre Jordan's contract. Now, look on its surface, that looks like yeah, the two years, twenty million dollars. That that's a lot to eat for four second rounders. But when you think about it, he gave away $4 million, uh, in the buyout so he could leave and join the Lakers, so that's down to 16. Uh, half of that is going to come off of the books this season, which doesn't matter because they were over the cap anyway, and they're not close to the luxury tax. So that that's really inconsequential. So really what this boils down to is I think around $7.8 million, $8 million, something like that next season. Uh, versus if they had kept uh, Siku Dumbuya, it would be something around like five or six. So I, I think the difference came. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think the difference came out to about two, two and a half million dollars extra by taking on DeAndre Jordan's dead money. And yeah, like you said, they could stretch, which would take into effect, uh, if I'm correct, would take into effect next season, not this season. So you'd be stretching his 7.8 million next season over three years instead of eating it next year. I would prefer to eat it next year because I don't love next year's free agency class, but as everybody knows, Troy Weaver loves to stretch deals. And look, if we didn't already have dead money on the books from stretching, I wouldn't care that much. But if you add the the 2.6 uh, to the 1.8 that they already owe, uh, I think Dwayne Deadman, um, you're, you're basically equaling out Josh Smith's dead money uh, after this season for the next three years. Uh, the money that they were that every Pistons fan loathed uh, being on the hook for Josh Smith for forever they're basically replicating that for three more years and I, I think look it, none of this matters if the Pistons win games and if they're on their way up but if they don't I think this would that would really uh, be a bitter pill for Pistons fans to swallow no, I, I agree with you. I, I understand the stretch and why GMs and organizations use it, but I'd rather, especially where we're at right now, just go ahead and eat it, open up the flexibility. But again, like I said, I, I've kind of been a little busier this weekend than most, and so I hadn't really had a chance to dive in, check all the reports. So I'm glad you knew that with DeAndre Jordan, so he gave $4 million back, and then how you broke that down, where really we're only increasing the cap $2 million um, whenever you factor in what Sekou is going to get paid anyway. So when you look at it from that factor, like you say, I mean, you get four round, second round picks to essentially increase your cap number by $2 million, and we got $6 million in cash considerations in that trade as well. So um, 
All in all, not awful. For me personally, I wanted to see one more year of Sekou, but if they're going to move on from him, like you say, that's, you know, taking four, getting four future second round picks isn't a bad deal. Real quick, it doesn't have to be, you know, super long. You may not have a, you know, a huge opinion on this, but just your thoughts on Sekou with the Brooklyn Nets. Obviously, that's a team that's going to have a lot of noise this year. You know, a team that's really, you know, vying for a championship. You know, it's championship or bust for them right now with where they're at. Do you see him touching the floor for them at all? Do you, do you see him making any sort of factor? I've seen t- people talking about, you know, with the floor spacing they have, that maybe that cutting slashing actually may come into play, or do you see him as a non-factor in Brooklyn? Look, if you look at them on paper, um, there, there's no earthly reason why he should touch the floor. Uh, I, I know I, already I'm hearing Pistons fans compare this to the Bruce Brown trade, but Bruce Brown sure. was already – he was already a uh, – he was already recognized as a uh, quality rotation player when the Pistons traded him. Uh, that he it wasn't a surprise, I don't think, to most people when he played well in Brooklyn because he, for the most part, he played well here. He just didn't he didn't fit what uh, Troy Weaver was trying to do. I, I think that both things can be true. That he he was very good in Brooklyn, and I think that he just didn't have a place here anymore. As far as uh, Sekou Dumbuya. Like I said, the, the roster is it's stacked, especially when you get to the wing positions. I, I don't see a place for him. Um, now, the one caveat is that the Nets are probably going to be one of those teams because they have some older players plus uh, Kevin Durant. There's, there's probably going to be some designated rest days, uh, some designated uh, load management days that maybe Siku Dumbuya can jump into the rotation and get a chance to prove himself. But I wouldn't be shocked uh, to see him play in the, the G League for at least this season. Absolutely. For you guys listening, we'll talk more about this as we go forward throughout the season as well. But really, and not that I don't love talking current Pistons with Keith, we had a chance to sit by each other for a whole summer league game. Not a Pistons summer league game, but just talk basketball. And he's just as much of a savant about current basketball as he is the history. But really, you know, Keith is special when it comes to the the history of the Detroit Pistons and the NBA. So I want to give him plenty of time to get into this. And today that's going to be what's known as the Till era in Pistons basketball. So we we covered the start of it. We covered the bad boys. We covered the going to work. So we're going to go back a little bit because we had to skip over this. And Keith, start us off with the end of the bad boys, just as a refresher for the listeners. Like the the bad boys era is ending, and it's it's transitioning into what we're going to talk about this episode. Okay, so this is where I was going to start off anyway. The the ninety three ninety four season, uh, which is you know still the most. Uh, depressing season uh, of my lifetime as a Pistons fan. It, it was supposedly like the, the one last dance for the bad boys. Isaiah, Bill Ambeer, uh, Dumars was still in his prime, but it, it was it was those three, and this was supposed to be their last year going out in style, and it just was, it was a total backfire. Uh, they brought in, um, here's one odd note, they brought in uh, unrestricted free agent Terry Mills uh, to a Ten million offer sheet, dollar offer sheet over five years, which was way too rich for the Nets to match. So that was their uh, prize free agent acquisition. Um, they brought in Sean Elliott uh, for Dennis Rodman, who was disgruntled, uh, as everybody everybody knows, and wanted out. Uh, Sean Elliott was in his mid twenties, coming off his first All Star season. Uh, it was seen as a really great return for a guy in his early thirties that didn't want to be there. And uh, it, it just didn't work. There, there were injuries. Uh, 
Isaiah Thomas, as the losing continued and it was becoming clear this this was not going to be this this grand finale that everyone thought it was going to be, I think both Isaiah and uh, Bill Ambeer kind of their frustrations kind of boiled over, and as as most Pistons fans uh, remember, uh, Isaiah Thomas and Bill Ambeer actually got into a fist fight in in a practice, and Isaiah Thomas uh, broke his hand on Ambeer's face, and uh, yeah. So he was out a month, and Lambeer was suspended, and then he came back and actually played uh, some of the most inspired basketball of the end of his career. Played really, really well against, uh, I remember there's a couple games against Orlando and San Antonio where he played really well. And then a couple weeks later, he retired. He just said, that's it. Uh, he, he gave his, that was his curtain call. Uh, I think he retired, I think, sometime late November, early December. And so that was kind of the, uh, yeah. And then they tried to move Sean Elliott for Robert Ory at the deadline to try to salvage that relationship. And they discovered uh, Sean Elliott had a kidney disorder and that he failed his physical. So that, yeah, they had to send him back. I mean, just, just bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And it, it culminated in uh, Isaiah Thomas in what... He hadn't officially announced it, but it was everybody kind of knew this was going to be his uh, his farewell, his his home finale at home against Orlando, last home game of the season, uh, packed crowd to, to say goodbye, and with I think a minute or two left in the game, uh, Isaiah Thomas tears his Achilles, and 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 he has to be at. at he, he has to be carried off the floor for his, his final game as a Piston, and he was done. Uh, he had to retire at 32 years old. Yeah, so so that, that horror show of a uh, 93-94 season, uh, the, the one fortunate thing is that the Pistons finished, I think, 20-62 and 62 that year, second-worst record in the league. But the, the one good thing about it, as we've learned this season, is you get very good lottery odds. So, yeah. So going into the 94 draft, uh, it was seen as basically by everybody as a three-player draft. Uh, you had Glenn Robinson uh, out of Purdue, Jason Kidd uh, from Cal, and Grant Hill from Duke. And uh, on a personal note, I, I had actually, I was at the Pistons draft lottery party, and I sat down next to Don Chaney, who was the head coach at the time. And I'm not sure who else he was sitting next. There was just an empty chair, and I sat down. I said, do you mind? And he said, no. So that, that was, it was interesting. But yeah, I'm just this 12-year-old kid sitting next to the the head coach, and we're we're watching. I think it was the Bulls-Knicks game, uh, waiting for halftime so the lottery can come on. And when the the Pistons landed uh, the third pick, uh, I forgot who he was sitting next to, but he he turns to the the gentleman next to him, Don Chaney, and he he immediately says Grant Hill, because that's that's just how it the obvious order was going to be. Uh, Milwaukee at number one uh, was going to Glenn Robinson was going to number was going number one no matter who got the pick, and then Dallas landing number two needed a point guard. It was going to be Jason Kidd, and Grant Hill would fall into the Pistons' lap at three. And it, it's kind of odd. I mean, you look back and you're thinking, okay, why why was Glenn Robinson the consensus number one? Yeah, I guess yeah, I I, I didn't remember that so. Yeah. So, but look, even I—I I was only a kid, but even I—I I was like dreaming of Glenn Robinson going into that draft party because, 
he led the he led the entire nation in scoring. He averaged over 30 points a game uh, at Purdue, and they weren't meaningless points either. Purdue won the Big Ten. They they had a number one seed for the tournament, and uh, J- Jason Kidd uh, meanwhile led the nation in assists, and uh, meanwhile Grant Hill, who was a, a couple years older, I think a year or two older. I, I know. Uh, Glenn Robinson was a redshirt uh, sophomore. Kid was a true sophomore, and uh, Grant Hill was a four-year senior. And he was the kind of this guy at Duke that kind of got lost in the shuffle, uh, being seen as the the guy next that that played third fiddle with Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley. But his his senior year, uh, Grant Hill was kind of by himself, and he carried that Duke team all the way to the national championship game. But his stats, I think he only averaged around 17 and 7 and 5, which you would consider great stats, but compared to Glenn Robinson, who averaged 30, that, that that's kind of... And he was a, a year or two older than the other than the other two. Uh, that was kind of why he was... Grant was seen as like the third player in a three-player draft. Yeah, yeah. So just real quick, just... So I was six years old. So when I say I didn't remember that, I guess I should just say I didn't know that about Glenn Robinson, but... Yeah, Hill from his junior to senior year went down in scoring. His field goal percentage dropped dramatically. Um, his three point percentage went up, but his so his, obviously his two point percentage went way down. So you know, seventeen and a half a game compared to Glenn Robinson's thirty. You know, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it was just it was just a raw numbers thing. Uh, Glenn Robinson, fantastic shooter, uh, one, still one of the prettiest uh, jump shots I've ever seen. Uh, but as far as his all-around game, uh, Grant Hill was just so much better than everybody. Uh, so, so Grant Hill signs a, his rookie deal. Um, they didn't have standard rookie deals back then. Uh, r- rookies could essentially negotiate I- any kind of contract they want. So uh, Grant Hill signed. He didn't hold out like a lot of others. He signed immediately. Uh, six years, $32 million. And... To, to me, I don't want to say he was the best rookie ever, but he may have been the most hyped rookie ever. I, Isaiah Thomas uh, was definitely uh, an explosive uh, rookie, grabbed a lot of attention, but he needed to show out for a few games before the town really caught on. With Grand Hill, it was a it was a packed house from day one to because there was so much interest into seeing because Isaiah Thomas had just retired and Grant Hill was being billed as the man that would take the torch from Isaiah Thomas and yeah he was Grant Hill was amazing right away uh can I ask one question Keith I'm sorry so I just remember from when we recorded episode 35 you know we talked about how Isaiah Thomas and even Kelly Trapuca didn't really embrace Detroit and the Pistons I can't imagine Grant Hill was the same way just knowing you know that who Grant Hill seems to be um, but was there anything like that whatsoever with Grant Hill did did he embrace the organization the same way like Kate Cunningham has um, do you have any recollection of that before we kind of get into his actual rookie season believe it or not it was kind of the opposite um, and it was this is a common theme throughout Grant Hill's uh, career in Detroit he, he went out of his way to ingratiate himself to not just Detroit but to everyone. He had this uh, wonderful, nice guy persona, uh, well-educated, came from Duke. Uh, his, his father was Calvin Hill. His, his mother was a roommate of Hillary Clinton, came from a nice family, uh, played the piano. Uh, and he had this really, like, I, and, and look, by my most accounts, he was not quite the 
such a Boy Scout privately, but his his public persona was just spotless. It was squeaky clean, and as you might imagine, that actually rubbed uh, locally. That rubbed a, a lot of Pistons fans the wrong way. Okay, I can see that. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he, Grant Hill just and look at, at this point, he wasn't the best shooter. Uh, ironically, I think he hit his first three three pointers of his career, and then finished the season one for twenty four. Uh, he, he was just he had to be uh, encouraged to take mid range shots, like longer mid range shots, let alone three pointers. He just he wasn't that good of a shooter, but what he had was this amazing ball handling ability at six eight. You, you could not stay in front of him. Uh, his elevation was pretty good. I wouldn't say it was like Vince Carter great. It wasn't, but he was probably the fastest. He might still be one of the fastest small forwards I've ever seen with a ball in his hands. Uh, he could create space in a phone booth. Uh, he could stop on a dime, cross you over, and then split split a double team, and then still find his way find a way to get to the basket. Everybody in the court knew he wasn't a good shooter, but he was still getting to the rim at will. So I, I think yeah the uh, the Pistons started that season five and two. Uh, Grant was averaging I think twenty two five and six on like over fifty three percent shooting. And it, the team again wasn't very good. Uh, they had traded Sean Elliott already. Uh, he was no longer there. And one thing I forgot to mention uh, the previous season uh, the the Pistons had two lottery picks the year before they drafted. Um, with two players uh, by the names of uh, Lindsey Hunter and Allen Houston. And while Lindsey Hunter had a decent rookie season, uh, Allen Houston at this point was, I don't want to say the word bust was being floated about, but he was, again, a much older uh, four-year college player, and he was having trouble adjusting. And once the season got really out of hand, uh, Don Chaney decided to to finally uh, let Allen Houston uh Start just to see if what he could get out of him, uh, development-wise, and all of a sudden, Allen Houston went from a guy that had trouble uh, doing anything on the court to being an absolute uh, firecracker. Uh, he started 30 straight games uh, for the rest of that season. He averaged over 23 points on, and shot uh, 48% from three-point range. It was just a, this massive explosion, just out of nowhere, just just giving him the minutes, the consistent touches. And the, I think the game that was uh, the the game that epitomized that season and maybe set the tone for the rest of uh, Grant Hill's Pistons career was this game in Orlando. Uh, I think with a week or two left in the season, where Orlando was fighting for the number one seed. Uh, in the Eastern Conference, and the Pistons are kind of playing out the string, but this was a national TV game, and Allen Houston and Grant Hill just dominated. Uh, they went out, I think they they combined for something like uh, 48, uh, 49 points. Uh, the Pistons just ran Orlando off the floor, and the, the important thing here is uh, the, the guy breaking down the game for, I think it was TBS, uh, was a man by the name of Doug Collins. And uh, Doug Collins, the, the former coach who was looking, uh, he was famously coach of the Bulls right before Phil Jackson, uh, this uh, maniacal genius that, he very brilliant man, one of the smartest uh, basketball minds, but he, he burned hot and he burned people out with his intensity. 
and you could almost hear the gears turning on his head as he's watching this this young uh, Pistons team run Orlando off the floor. And like like maybe this could be my next opportunity. And okay, so as for Grant Hill that season, uh, this is when the hype for him got I would say almost out of hand. Uh, he was the first rookie in all of professional sports to to lead his league in all-star votes. Not just the NBA, all professional sports. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Say that again, please. Uh, Grant Hill for the all-star game that season, uh-huh. his rookie year, uh, he, he, he got the most votes for any player. In the and whole not league. Only was that a rec- not only was that a record for the NBA, that was a record for any professional sport. Wow. He was on the uh, cover of Gentleman's Quarterly uh, with the, and this is the most absurd thing, with the uh, the cover, the uh, line on the cover said, can Grant Hill save sports? Wow. Yeah. All right. So for some, for some reference, the uh, professional sports, look, they didn't need saving in the 90s, but they definitely had a black eye. You had these labor disputes uh, both in football and baseball famously baseball lost an entire season to a to a strike or excuse me a hockey and uh baseball and then hockey missed they were in danger of missing a whole season uh to a labor shortage or a, a labor disagreement and then you had you know nba players were more constantly getting into fights and it, it, it was Again, sports did not need saving, certainly not for Grant Hill, but Grant Hill's uh, image, this squeaky clean nice guy image, who was a, just an absolute superstar, uh, he, he gave off this uh, very counterculture nice guy uh, image that made him feel like a breath of fresh air to a lot of people. Yeah, the, the one last thing, the, uh, the, G, the GQ uh, article on him listed like the, the three most influential sports figures. Uh, for the rest of the 90s. Uh, they were in order. Rupert Murdoch, number one. Uh, Grant Hill, number two. And David Stern, number three. Wow. What a list. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, the irony is Grant Hill didn't even win the Rookie of the Year outright. He he tied it with Jason Kitt, so they had to split the award. I, I didn't... I, I did not realize that Grant Hill was such, like, a face of... NBA, let alone sports, in that way. Yeah, he went on. He went on. David Letterman played the piano. It was he. He was a commercial sensation. Uh, he got his own shoe uh, shoe line with a uh, Fila. Uh, it was yeah. And again, I would argue he, he's the only superstar that I can think of in my lifetime that was more popular nationally than he was locally. Like uh, P- Pistons fans recognized that Grant Hill was really good. But it, it was hard for them to embrace him, and I think the more he the more he got embraced by outsiders uh, per se, uh, I think the harder it was for them to like him. So that's a, I mean, just as you know, I, I don't live in Detroit, and I'm new to to the the Pistons, you know. But I, I get that vibe that like that that they you want to be one of theirs, you know, you really embrace and, and you don't necessarily want the outside 
it's very close knit. You don't want people from the outside embracing. You know, like when Isaiah Stewart started to get in love from the outside, everybody's kind of like, no, 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 stay away. This is our guy, which I love. I love that about it. But I could see that if the whole country was embracing Grant Hill, Detroit fans maybe being like, no, 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 we don't really like that. Yeah, and you, you also have to understand the history because the, the bad boys, despite being one of the greatest teams, sure, I think, sure. ever, uh, they were hated nationally. And especially it was personified by Michael Jordan who who just shredded them any, ta- uh, any chance he could in, whenever there was a microphone in front of his face. So it, it was almost the, okay, everybody hated us before and we won. But those same people now are, are loving this Grant Hill, and gee, I, I don't know if this is going to work because I don't know how I feel about this. I, I think I think I can speak for most Pistons fans when I say that was kind of the feeling with him. Like, you, we, we loved Grant Hill, but it was hard to call Grant Hill one of ours, at least at the time. Sure. So, all right, so we go to uh, the 96 season. And Don Chaney, the, the Pistons coaches, let go. The, the, the Pistons were god-awful. I think they were last or second to last in the league defensively. Not much better on offense. And uh, Doug Collins uh, was not only hired, but he was essentially given the Stan Van Gundy uh, czar role as he was not only hired as the coach, he was hired as the GM. So he had complete power over everything. And he actually made a nice... Uh, deal to start uh, again he was a brilliant guy I still think he is a fantastic common hitter to listen to uh, the Pistons had the number 8 pick and he flipped the number 8 pick maybe one of the few times I, I can recall ever where trading out of the lottery has paid off uh, he traded the number 8 pick to Portland for the 18th and 19th picks and for the eight, uh, 18th pick they drafted uh, Theo Ratliff a wonderful shot blocker and the 19th pick uh, as part of a deal, he traded back to Portland a couple uh, months later for Otis Thorpe. And Otis Thorpe was a, he was just coming off of winning the championship with Houston a, a couple years ago before they traded him for Clyde Drexler. Uh, big, uh, big, uh, bulky power forward, uh, some of the biggest hands you've ever seen uh, on, on a human being. Uh, wonderful power player, could, could, not the tallest, but played well in transition, uh, perfect ideal pick-and-roll partner for, for Grant Hill. Uh, there, it seemed there, there was no, no downside to that. And the Pistons started slow. Uh, they started, I think, three and four. And what happened was uh, Doug Collins, again, slow to warm up to Allen Houston because of the defense. He was very much a defense-first head coach. I think around game seven or eight, uh, Doug Collins inserts uh, Allen Houston into the starting lineup and starts using, uh, in place of Lindsey Hunter, who was the point guard at the time, and starts using Grant Hill as a essentially the point guard out of the small forward position. It's, it's what we know now as a point forward. And even though the, the Pistons played at a relatively slow pace, uh, they were, they, they were, it, it, look, it, the change wasn't immediate, but they got better and better and better uh, as the season went on. Because you had uh, Grant Hill handling the ball and two absolute sharpshooting snipers in Joe Dumars and Allen Houston. Essentially two shooting guards next to Grant Hill. And the, the, the Pistons were an excellent shooting team. And they, they went from being uh, 
from struggling to stay above 500 to being 10, 11, 12 games over 500 by the end of the season. And yeah, they were yeah they they were a really good shooting team. Uh, and they they went from dead last in the league in defense to I think seventh. And yeah, they, as we go to the playoff, they finished 46 and 36. Uh, th- that got them the seventh seed. And unfortunately, that that meant uh, that they faced Shaq and Penny in the Orlando Magic in the playoffs. Yeah, that didn't that didn't go very well. Um, so Orlando swept them uh, three games to nothing. Uh, Hill, I don't want to say he played poorly because if you look at the stats, he shot well. But Orlando did a great job of keeping him from being a playmaker. They 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 walled off the rim. They kept him off the foul line. And I I, I think even Grant Hill admitted he didn't play his best. Uh, meanwhile, Allen Houston averaged I think 25 points in that series. Uh, he played exceedingly well. So, go, going into the 96-97 season, I, it looked like everything was upside. The Pistons had uh, two, maybe the best young wing duo in the league. Uh, they had, they were about to open up a bunch of cap space uh, to go out and add some free agents, and the first real big free agency somewhere in league history. And th- th- there's. This heads into uh, what I like to call the offseason from hell. Uh, yeah, it was the, the single most disastrous offseason, at least of my lifetime, in team history. Uh, first off, Alan Houston uh, had an opt-out clause in his contract after three years. And, of course, uh, as well as he played uh, the season before in his, his playoff showing, of course he was going to exercise that and become a free agent. And the Pistons front office essentially was, look, the way it used to be was teams generally resigned their own free agents. You, you didn't you didn't go straying looking for other teams to, to sign with. Uh, any time a player became a, a star became a free agent, it was just to get more money. And uh, the, the Pistons didn't take it seriously. And, you know, today, if you think about it, an unrestricted free agent uh, shooting guard averaging 20 points in his third season... Oh, man. Here's what you don't tell him. You don't you don't give him a lower offer. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but by all accounts, the Pistons gave him maybe a fair offer for what he was currently doing, but not for what he was could potentially be in the future, which is what you know teams do now. And basically, what they told him was, you can take our offer, and you can go around and shop yourself. And if uh, another team. Uh, offer you to do something better, just bring it back to us and we'll match it. And you don't tell that to an unrestricted free agent. Um, okay, so but before that sorts itself out, the, the Pistons again had a lot of cap space. Uh, their first off, their first uh, off-season target was Dikembe Mutombo, because that was the th- that that's where they we were they were weak at at the time was the middle. They didn't have a shot blocker in the middle, so they offered Mutombo. Uh, I want to say uh, five years, $50 million, and it looked like they might get him. They had him in for a visit, and then he went to Atlanta, and Matumbo, being a, the reason he gave, at least, being a, a native African, he, he, he was sick of playing in cold weather uh, in Denver, and he liked the climate of Atlanta much more uh, than he did in Detroit, so he took the exact same five-year, $50 million offer 
and went to the Atlanta Hawks. That's it's, it's. I wish we knew some of those details more. Whenever people make free agent decisions, you know, like I, I, I can't imagine that doesn't play a factor more. You know, like hey, I just don't want to live where it's cold and it's snowy, or I don't want to live here, you know? And so I just find it interesting that you bring that up with, you know, a little caveat there with the Matumbo decision. And and so the Pistons' plan B was uh, Juwan Howard uh, from the uh, University of Michigan. And he was also a free agent. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how much money that they were talking to him about, but they, it looks, for all intents and purposes, it looked like he was willing to take a little less to come to Detroit and play with Allen Houston and Grant Hill. And what happened was uh, free agency uh, starts, well, the, the, the period where you can negotiate contracts, and Allen Houston immediately leaves and signs with the Knicks. He, he took one visit to New York. Uh, yep, the, the Knicks did not... Uh, the Knicks did not mince words. They... they, they paid him not to get out the door. I think it was like seven years, $54 million, uh, something along, which was a ton back then. And Houston's next call was to say goodbye. He did not give the Pistons a chance to match. And you know what? In retrospect, I don't blame him. The, the Knicks made him feel wanted. The, the Pistons just made him feel like, you know, we'll, we'll take you back, but, you know, we're, we're going to pay you, you know, what we feel you're worth. And we're going to let someone else uh, negotiate your contract for you. That's not that's not how you do business. So once word of that got out, when, uh, when the Pistons lost Allen Houston to the Knicks, uh, Juwan Howard immediately pivoted uh, and signed with Miami. Uh, reportedly, he was he he saw the writing on the wall there, and he didn't want to play with the Pistons anymore. So he signed uh, famously. He became, Juwan Howard became the NBA's first $100 million player. Uh, ironically, the, the contract was voided because the uh, the NBA ruled the Miami Heat didn't have the cap space. He, but he just wound up going back to Washington for the same deal. So so at, at, look, a month into free agency, and the walls are already crumbling down around Doug Collins. He he's lost out on Matumbo. He lost out on Juwan Howard. Allen Houston just walked out. The Knicks took him right out from under his nose. And so Doug Collins does what any coach with way too much power does, which he, he, he panics. So he he wound up sending uh, two first-round picks and two second-round picks to the Atlanta Hawks for uh, two of their starters, uh, Stacey Ogman and Grant Long, which will come into play later. But that was just a – it was a gross misuse of assets. So the, the 1997 season starts, and you're thinking that the, the Pistons are probably going to take a step back. Most people were. Oh, and by the way, I neglected to mention, I'm sorry, this is also uh, when they debuted the TLG uniforms during okay. that Okay, I, I was Before waiting. Before all of this, this should have been the, the, the preface for this entire disastrous, god-awful summer is the very first thing that happened was they unveiled the teal uniforms. Okay, I was going to ask when, at what point this happened. If it was like at the beginning of the offseason, if, if they introduced it right at the beginning of the start of the season or what, so. Well, they, they introduced it, um, I think, right after the season, or I think right before, about a month before free agency, I think. Something along those lines. It was May or June. So it was a precursor to what was about to happen. Yes, and who do you think the two players that they had modeled, modeling the uniforms, the teal uniforms? Uh, it, oh, Houston? Yes, Allen Houston and Grant Hill. 
Um, yeah, there are, there are pictures that you can find of Alan Houston wearing the, the teal Pistons uniform that he never actually put on in a game. So for all you listeners that are looking up Alan Houston teal uniform right now as you're listening to the episode, I'm doing the same thing live, and I just found the picture. It shows up the first thing when you Google it. Alan Houston in the teal next to Grant Hill. Wow. And he never actually wore it. Yep. And the, the thing is, look, the teal uniforms were received somewhat warmly to begin with because they were a new thing, and teal was such a big thing in the 90s. All these, A lot of expansion franchises were using it, uh, and it, it seemed like the Pistons just hired a, a PR firm, and the PR firm just said, oh, what's the trendy thing right now? Let's, let's make a teal uniform with... Uh, it's supposed to be, I guess, it, the flaming horse on the front of the jersey, the the logo is supposed to symbolize horsepower, but the way they designed it just makes it look like someone set a chess piece on fire. So, yeah, it was... Look, I, I, I will fully raise my hand and say I was one of those kids that when they unveiled it, I, I, I saw that news report the night before. I immediately, I had my mom drive me out to the palace, uh, which was like 10 minutes from, or 20 minutes from where I grew up, went to the palace locker room store, got myself, not a regular, but like one of the cheap replica jerseys with the teal. And I, I couldn't wear that to school the next day. I, I thought that was just the neatest thing. Uh, it's funny you bring up the chess piece because I do, like whenever I see it, I honestly, I immediately think of a knight from playing chess. Like that's what it looks like to me is it, and and I do like them. Like my wife, that was the first shirt she bought whenever, you know, I started doing this. Her first piston shirt right now or her only piston shirt right now is one of those. And I, I think the, the look is cool, but it, it's funny you bring up that with the chess piece because that is what it looks like. All right, so... Again, everybody assumes uh, going into that season, the debut of the, the first Teal season, Pistons had this offseason from hell. They're going to take a step back. Will they make the playoffs? Well, this is when you see Doug Collins at his absolute best. Uh, he, he puts Grant Hill into a full-time point-forward role with uh, Terry Mills, who was one of the fir- first premier stretch bigs uh, up front. Yeah, Lindsey Hunter back in the starting lineup. He was also a good spot shooter, and Joe Dumars. And that team started uh, the season on fire, just absolutely gangbusters. They started 10 and one, uh, ran that up to 20 and four, and ran that up to 30 and 11 at the midway point, which was uh, it, at the time it was a team record for the best 41 best 41 start in team history, better than any of the bad boy seasons. Uh, they, they were a magnificent shooting uh, outside shooting team with Grant Hill creating for everybody and dishing out to shooters. Uh, Terry Mills set an NBA record. He hit 13 straight three-pointers at one point. Uh, Joe Dumars, uh, without Allen Houston, Joe Dumars had a bounce-back season. He made the all-star team. Uh, he shot a career-high uh, 43% uh, from the three-point line. I think Terry Mills shot 42%. You know, the Pistons as a team were one of the top defensive teams in the league because they played such a slow, deliberate uh, half-court style. Uh, they set, I think, a league record for fewest turnovers uh, because, again, they, Doug Collins' influence, everything they did was meticulous. Everything they did, it was like watching the Stockton and Malone Jazz where you knew it was coming, but you really couldn't stop it because no one in that time could stop Grant Hill. And Grant Hill at that season, uh, once again... Uh, 
made the all-star team. Uh, he had 13 triple-doubles that season. The close, the next highest, uh, next best player was had four. Uh, it was a much slower pace back then, so it was hard to get those kinds of numbers. Uh, he finished third in MVP voting behind, I think, Jordan and Karl Malone. And the, it was just that, that first half of that, that 96-97 season was, was remarkable uh, for the talent that they had to to be as good as they were. And in the second half of the season is when you saw uh, the reason why Doug Collins uh, you know, flamed out in Chicago. Uh, well, first thing you... If you notice, I haven't uh, meant brought up Stacy Augman or Grant Long. Uh, so yeah, there's a reason for that. Uh, Stacy Augman uh, was a terrible fit from the beginning. Uh, for some background information, Stacy Augman was very athletic, uh, supersized uh, 6'8 shooting guard. Uh, but the problem is he was very much a slasher and a post-up player. His range was about six feet. He he could not shoot. Uh, and the problem is you put that with Grant Hill, who needs space so he can get to the rim. Not, not, not Also not a guy that you want taking a whole lot of jump shots, and they clog the floor for each other. And so Stacey Ogman from, went from being a starter at the beginning of the season to kind of being out in the rotation. And which is, you know, that's something that happens. But Stacy had been a starter since his rookie year. He was a lottery pick. Uh, he was not used to that. And Collins is a guy that if you're playing, uh, if you're getting minutes, if you're playing well, you kind of deal with how much he shouts and screams. Because his intensity, I don't, I don't think he was ever a cruel coach. He was just, he was a guy that almost, he never really retired as a player, I, I guess you could say. He, he was always shouting. He was always screaming. He was, anytime someone made a little mistake, he'd scream at them, this is what you did wrong. And he, he really didn't have any uh, tact. Uh, you know, he screamed at you. He screamed at you in front of everybody. And uh, it came to a head with Stacey Ogman where he, he called. Uh, it, it, it seemed like he was only calling fouls on Stacey Ogman in practice. And it, at some point, uh, Stacey Ogman just lost it and started screaming at him, walked out of practice, and he never played again. He was... Well, he never played for the Pistons again. He demanded a trade, and I think a month or so later, the Pistons finally moved him to Portland for Aaron McKee. Now, the reason I, the reason I'm bringing this up is uh, Doug Collins was not done uh, burning bridges. Uh, Otis Thorpe, who had been a rock, absolute rock for the Pistons in the middle as an undersized uh, center, just doing all the dirty work, finishing Grant Hill passes under the rim. Uh, Doug there was this uh, infamous uh, incident in Phoenix where uh, Otis Thorpe, who's usually a very quiet guy, uh, he spoke up in a huddle because the Pistons were getting clobbered early, and he said, you know, he, st- he started telling everybody, we need to pick it up, we need to play defense, and Doug Collins, in front of the team, uh, screams, Do you, does that include you? Are you going to play some defense? <laughs> And yeah, from from that point on, their relationship was irreparable. And look, the, you can say that the Pistons were never quite as good as their record that season, and that's probably true. But the way that everything fell apart, like the the reason that they had so much success was because of their chemistry. Everyone was in tune with where each uh, each other was on the court. Uh, they, they out-executed you, and little by little, I think Doug Collins kind of eroded away at that chemistry. So, 
the, the Pistons, admittedly, a very good Eastern Conference uh, that season. Uh, they they finished the season seven and eleven. Uh, they had a five game lead. They had they were in line for a home court advantage. They had a five game lead on Atlanta, and they finished uh, seven and eleven over the last eighteen games and lost it. And yeah, the one exception which a lot of Pistons fans will remember was uh, this na- national TV game against the Bulls, this NBC game, and the the Pistons at that point had lost nineteen straight to to Chicago. And Chicago, at that point, I think they were making another run for 70. I think they were 68 and 10 or 11 at that time. And they had won 13 of their last 14. And there were rumors that Doug Collins was going to be fired right before the playoffs. Like, that's how toxic things had gotten. Like, that, that the old Bill Davidson was going to fire Doug Collins in the midst of a 50-win season. So, so, yeah, so what happened was... The Pistons came out gangbusters. Uh, they actually blew out the Bulls on national TV. It was the first, obviously, the first winning Grant's career against Michael Jordan, and they played maybe one of their best games of the entire season. And you can see it as the clock is ticking down, like Doug Collins is in tears uh, because he thinks his his team is playing for him. And I I don't think that that ever was the case. I think they were just sick of getting their teeth kicked in by Chicago, and they were trying to win a game and get themselves to the get themselves home court advantage. And so again, the, like I said, the Pistons uh, they blew this big lead that they had for home court. They finished with 54 wins, and 54 wins in the East. Uh, in 1997 was good enough for the fifth seed. I know. I, th- that's what's crazy, right, Keith? I, I was just looking at the record, and then I started looking at the playoffs. I'm like, a five seed with that record is crazy. Yeah, yeah. And if you look uh, down one more, uh, the, the Hornets won 53 games, and they finished sixth. It was just that the East was just that overpowering that season. Uh, so, And the thing is, the Pistons went up against the Hawks. No home court advantage, but they were probably objectively better than the Hawks. They'd beaten them three out of four fairly easily. Uh, they took the fir- two of the first three games. Uh, all they had to do was close them out of the Palace in game four, and uh, they couldn't do it. Grant Hill played spectacular. He, he had 28 points uh, in that closeout game, but the problem is uh, Lindsey Hunter and Joe Dumars just could not make anything. Uh, they combined for four of, I think, 26 uh, shooting the two the two back uh, starting guards and things went to Atlanta for game five and you could kind of see how this was going to wind up because just this dark cloud kept following them and so they go to Atlanta for game five and they they get into the halftime locker room and it's tied and Doug Collins still trying to motivate people uh, says okay he said something to the along the lines of guys if we can just keep get this keep this close going into crunch time, I will figure out a way for us to win this game. And Otis Thorpe, in his little moment of revenge, screams back at him, what are you going to do? Go out there and play? <laughs> so, yeah. So, and, and that was, again, the, the Pistons had an eight-point lead in the fourth quarter. They actually had a nice lead. They, didn't, they weren't just uh, tied. They had a nice lead. And they absolutely blew it. Uh, Grant Hill... Which, again, it kind of hurt him locally. He he shot 0 for 5 in the fourth quarter, uh, didn't score. 
uh, and Steve Smith, uh, the Hawks guard, hit this ridiculous uh, buzzer-beating, shot clock-beating three with about a minute left to put the game away. And I still remember that shot to this day because my heart just sank. It was just one of those it's over uh, kind of moments. And it, it didn't feel like it was just over for this season. It felt like this was this was it for this regime. And we were going to have to do something else because it was just not, despite 54 wins and achieving way more than anyone thought they would that season, uh, it's, it ended on such a negative note that you felt like there was nowhere, no way this was going to go but down. So that offseason, um, uh, the Pistons lost Terry Mills to Miami as a free agent, which hurt. Uh, Doug Collins, in the most obvious move ever, traded away uh, Otis Thorpe. Uh, he traded him uh, for uh, to Vancouver. He banished him to Vancouver, essentially, uh, for for a lottery pick that was protected, well protected for seven years. Which side note, we don't have time to go into this, but side note, wound up becoming the pick that turned into the Darko Milicic pick in the 0-3 draft, the number two pick. Because it was protected, and the Vancouver Grizzlies were so awful year after year after year. They kept retaining their pick, and every year the protections went down a little bit, one by one by. So by the time 0-3 came around, it was only top one protected. So yeah, but that was essentially Otis Thorpe was traded for the pick that the Pistons. In, uh, unfortunately, used on Darko Milicic. Um, That's incredible. Yep. So to so to replace him um, at center, uh, Doug Collins used his cap space on a player named Brian Williams, uh, who later changed his name to become Bison Daly. So for yeah, for the purposes of this conversation, I'm just going to refer to him as Bison Daly uh, from this point on. Uh, seven years, forty-five million dollars. Uh, also signed Malik Seeley. Uh, nice wing, uh, terrible fit because much like Grant Hill, uh, not a very good shooter. They both wanted to slash and get to the basket. It was just a bad fit. But again, uh, rest in peace, Malik Seeley. Uh, very, very good player. So, and again, for reasons unknown to me, uh, the owner of the Pistons, Bill Davidson, elects not to fire Doug Collins. He keeps him around. And the dark cloud just followed them into that season. Uh, they didn't have the floor spacing with Terry Mills. I think uh, Joe Dumars injured his groin in the first game. So without the shooting, uh, everything just it was easy to defend the Pistons inside. They they started out terribly. I think six and eleven. Uh, included in those six that six and eleven start, they lost twice uh, to Otis Thorpe's Vancouver Grizzlies. You think uh, Otis? You think Otis had anything to say to the bench during those games? Uh, he he, I'll, I'll tell you what I, I didn't see either of those games. Although I, I think I listened to both on radio, but yes, Otis Thorpe was constantly involved it, it, in the box score. I know he didn't do a whole lot, but yes, it was that was very much his revenge tour. Um, so. It, it, things got worse and worse, and in one last-ditch effort to save his job, uh, Doug Collins uh, uses the only uh, bullet left in the chamber. He makes a trade with Philadelphia. Uh, he trades Theo Ratliff and Aaron McKee to Philadelphia for Jerry Stackhouse, who at the time, not a good fit with Allen Iverson. Uh, originally, he was a top three, top five pick. 
uh, for the Sixers. Uh, but again, a, a guy that always wanted to shoot the ball, and so did Iverson, so they were just a bad fit together. And he was coming up on a free agency, so they made that swap. And it, it, it helped a little bit because it was a good... It, in retrospect, it was a good deal, even though Ratliff played very well for the Sixers. Uh, but even though... It, <laughs> He added some scoring, but the Pistons were still treading water. Of, I think they were only a 500 team in, in the next two months. And I think around February, uh, Doug Collins was fired as both coach and GM. And he was replaced uh, by one of his assistants, a guy that fans today should know pretty well, Alvin Gentry. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, a guy by the name of uh, Rick Sund, who was... Uh, he was uh, Doug Collins' uh, number two... Uh, below him at the GM spot. He was next in line. So the, the Pistons uh, missed the playoffs. They, they, the hole was just too, de- uh, too deep. They wound up with a 10th pick in the draft in, in a really, really good 98 draft. Uh, for, for reference, and this, this keeps me up at night still, the 8th and 9th picks right before them were Dirk Nowitzki and Paul Pierce. Oh, man. Yeah. So the, the Pistons had the 10th pick... Uh, they, and what they did was they tra- they drafted a guy named Bonzi Wells, who was actually a very good player. Uh, never played Portland, a minute, right? Yes, never played a minute in Detroit. Uh, they immediately traded. Uh, they flipped him to Portland for a future first round pick, and then they took that pick and they flipped it to Atlanta for Christian Leitner, which again sounds it's a win now move, but it sounds like a look a former All Star, Grand Hills former Duke teammate. Everything's roses, right? Uh, except for that a little Achilles tear that he had the year before, which is the reason why he was available. Uh, so that didn't apparently that didn't phase uh, Rick Sundany. He made that deal, and then he went out and signed uh, Judd Bushler, Loy Vaught. Uh, Bushler played uh, very well in spot minutes, good spot sh- spot, spot up shooter. Vaught, uh, much like Leitner. Uh, an absolute rock for the Clippers uh, during the 90s, but then he had spinal fusion surgery, which apparently didn't phase Rick's son. He went and signed him. Uh, so, so we're going into 99, and then we have the lockout. And at this point, the, the Pistons go 295 days between playing games. Uh, for, for a reference point, that's, that's longer than they had off during the pandemic. So the, 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 we have an abridged season that starts, I think, it, it started around February, I think the first week of February. Uh, Jerry Stackhouse was retained. They actually uh, kept him in free agency, uh, seven years, $40 million, but it, a lot of it was because he didn't play all that well. Uh, and not a lot of teams had interest. Uh, it was the opposite of the Allen Houston thing, where even the Pistons had, like, lukewarm interest, but eventually they, the both sides just decided, look... Um, you, we, we've got the money. No one else wants it. Just come back. So, Alvin Gentry uses Grant Hill. He takes Grant Hill off the the point forward role. He uses him a little bit more as a score. Uh, Pistons start out great. Uh, Grant Hill has a career-high 46 points, I think, in the third game. Uh, the team improved tremendously from the year before. It looked like they were on their way back. They had a top 10 offense and a top 10 defense that season. Uh, the, the arrangement with Jerry Stackhouse was that he would come off the bench uh, and Joe Dumars would retire after this season. 
uh, which I don't think I don't agree was a great idea because uh, Joe Dumars in that last season he could still shoot he he I, I'm sure he could still shoot today but he he was uh, getting a little bit older he he couldn't move around as well anymore he wasn't the defensive force he used to be and Jerry Stackhouse was this athletic wing that kind of needed minutes he he wasn't very good off the bench but they kept it that way and they still had a good season. And then we get to the playoffs, and I think this is kind of when you see the fan base of Abandon Hope uh, in, in the Grant Hill Pistons. Atlanta, again, uh, probably not as good as the Pistons were. Uh, they immediately blow out the Pistons twice. They just crush them twice. And it, it, the series goes back home, and the Palace is you know half empty for, for a playoff game. And the, the Pistons do win the next two games that tied up, uh, games three and game four. And uh, Joe goes out in style in game four. He, I think he has 20 points in the last his last game. But I I still remember the standing ovation the fans were giving him at the end, like this is it, when in reality it was a tied series. And he was one win away from playing. But no one had any real faith that the Pistons were going to, to win the series. And honestly, they didn't. Because first rounds were best of five then, right? Right. Correct. Until 2003, they were best of five. I'm sorry, I should have mentioned that. So, uh, the series, again, goes the distance. Five games in Atlanta. Uh, they actually had to play this one, I think, in uh, in Georgia Tech's facility. I think it was the Georgia Dome. And, you know, Grant Hill played well. Uh, Bison Dele, in what would be his last game in a frustrating Pistons career, uh, he he, he played really well. Uh, he shot uh, 8 for 10, I think, at 16, 17 points. Grant Hill had 21 points, 11 assists. Uh, Joe Dumars, sadly, had one of the worst games of his career. Uh, I think shot just 1 for 6, scored only 3 points. And the, the Pistons just couldn't muster enough, uh, muster enough offense uh, to, to take the series, and they lost it. And that was a golden opportunity, too, because they that, that was the year the Knicks beat, upset the Heat in an 8-1 series. And they would have had home court advantage if they had just won that game. And then the yeah, and the Knicks wound up sweeping that Hawks team in the second round. So it's not like there was a great opportunity for them. And so we go into the last season uh, for Grant Hill in Detroit, that 2000 season. Uh, immediately, uh, Bison Dele, who had been battling depression most of his career, uh, wonderfully talented center. Um, but he was just battling his own inner demons. Uh, he, Bison Daly on certain nights could look like the best player on the floor. He just had he had excellent footwork. He had good quickness for a guy his size. Great hands. Uh, could shoot uh, out to 15, 16 feet reliably. Could post. Big, strong guy. Uh, could elevate. But there's a reason why he bounced around uh, so many teams in his, his short careers because those days were few and far between. And it, that followed him to Detroit, but only with a huge contract. So uh, Bison Daly uh, just kneecaps the Pistons immediately, uh, tells them I'm out, uh, retires. And he in his he had five years and 30, uh, $32 million, I think, on, left on his contract, 36 something along those lines. Uh, in any case, it is the largest, still to this day, 21 years later, it's the largest contract buyout in NBA history because he gave back basically every dollar of that guaranteed contract in order to just retire and get away. Wow. Um, yeah, and tragically, as 
a lot of people know. Um, two years later, and again, it, but Bison Daly, I, I understand that basketball wasn't his his love in life. He just, you know, he wanted to be comfortable in his own skin. But there were times where he was an incredibly passionate player, and times where he didn't even want to be on the floor. Um, so. This, this was honestly a good thing for him to get his uh, mental health in gear. Uh, so anyway, as I was saying, uh, two years later, I think in Tahiti, uh, he, his girlfriend, and his brother uh, go out to sea on the Pacific Ocean, and only his brother comes back. Yep. And, yeah, and that was the, the tragic end for uh, for Bison Daly. All right, so... What, after Daly retires, um, the Pistons don't have any more cap room. They can't make any more deals. They're just kind of stuck without a center. Uh, but And Joe Dumars retires. He's not GM yet. He's a GM in waiting. They give him a, a year under Rick's son to be an observer and learn. So uh, what the Pistons do as a last-ditch effort, they bring Terry Mills back, who was well past his uh, prime at this point. He was... Never did well in Miami. Uh, couldn't stay in shape, which doesn't go over with Pat Riley. Uh, I remember uh, he he could still shoot it though. He was he was still an effective pick and pop guy. But I remember him just lumbering up and down the floor with these huge knee braces on. And so here's what the Pistons did have left. They had Grant Hill, uh, who was in his prime, and they had uh, Jerry Stackhouse, who was finally ready to be a starter. And Alvin Gentry does he does either a smart or a not smart thing uh, depending on how you look at it. He brings in uh, George Irvin as his lead assistant, uh, and George Irvin very much uh, I would compare him a lot to Mike D'Antoni, uh, similar ABA background, very much an offense first, pace and space uh, type coach before it was trendy to be so. And the the Pistons make this huge drastic. Uh, Change uh, from the year before, where they'd been a slow, half deliberate half-court team. In 2000, they tried to run you off the floor. Uh, they were one of the fastest-paced teams in the league. Uh, Hill and Stackhouse, uh, for most of the season, they were both in the top five in scoring. Um, I think they finished in the top ten, but they were just they were they were the second highest scoring duo in the entire league to Kobe and Shaq. Uh, they were really, really, really good. And they weren't just fast-paced. They were efficient. The Pistons, I think, finished fourth in the league in efficiency. And they were the top free-throw shooting team in the league. They couldn't defend, but they, 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 it was a very entertaining season because Hill and Stackhouse were such a dangerous wing combo. And it looked like, even though the, the record wasn't great, it looked like, okay, this is a different type of team. Maybe this is a team that could... That, that's built to win in the postseason with all this firepower. And that's when the um, when things turned dark for Grant Hill. Uh, his, his ankle started to give out. Uh, he hurt it uh, the first time in Chicago in January, uh, came back. He, he hurt it again in April just before the playoffs. And this is kind of where I think things... Uh, get bitter for both Grant Hill and the fans is because even though he had been roughly injury-free most of his career, he still had that reputation of not being a tough guy. And there was a lot of pressure on him 
Because, again, remember, the fans are, are are barely a decade removed from seeing Isaiah Thomas on a sprained ankle, you know, score 25 points in the finals. So there, there was so much pressure locally of, okay, you've got a sprained ankle, so what, get out there and play. And none of the Pistons doctors, uh, allegedly, none of the Pistons doctors backed him up, uh, according to Grant Hill. They, they, they wouldn't shut him down. Uh, so... Grant Hill forces himself to play, and it's one of the sadder things I can remember seeing because they go up against Miami in the first round. It's a 2-7 matchup, and Miami's uh, small forward is a guy named Jamal Mashburn, who was, no disrespect, a very good, very good player. He was never Grant Hill. He was never as good as Grant Hill, and Grant Hill is used to outplaying him soundly, and the first game, I think... Jamal Mashburn scores 28 points on highly efficient. He was just going around Grant Hill like Grant Hill was a statue. And it, it was just, you could tell just by looking at Grant Hill, it, 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 it wasn't, this, this, this isn't right. You know, he, he's not the same guy. He's not moving like, he, like he's used to moving. You know, somebody needs to step in here. And then he tries to play again in game two. And at that point, he's not just walking slowly. He's limping. Like, he, he's limping around badly, and it kind of reminded me of, uh, like, watching a boxing match where the guy's that's on the ropes, he can't defend himself, and you're just... You're, you're looking for the, the corner guy to throw in the towel. And, you know, mercifully, I think... And he tried to play the second half, uh, couldn't. It looked like he hurt his ankle even more, and then they finally shut him down. And it should never have gone to that point. You know, today... You know he wouldn't have he he would have been shut down for two months. This this wouldn't have happened. So yeah, the the Pistons get swept out of the playoffs, and Grant Hill is everyone was waiting for him to become a free agent, and this is where things get kind of dicey. Um, everyone assumed again because generally back then a team. You generally, teams re, uh, retain to their superstars, especially with the new collective bargaining agreement with the max contracts. It allowed, you know, a team to offer more money, you know, than than, uh, than another team would. And the Pistons, of course, offered Grant Hill the uh, seven-year, uh, ninety-two million dollar max. And instead, uh, first day of free agency, which is also the first day uh, Joe Dumars becomes the official GM. Uh, Grant Hill tells the Pistons he's leaving to Orlando. Uh, for he, he was willing to take a six-year, $67 million deal. He was willing to take that much less just to get out of there. It tells you how bad the relationship had gotten right there. Uh, I, I think, yeah, he just kind of had lost. I don't think it had anything to do with Joe Dumars, but if you're Grant Hill yeah, yeah. and you've been through this for yeah. six years and you're in the prime, he was 28 at, at, at the point, do you really want to sign another long contract and then... Yeah, and then that that's the rest of your prime. So, in Orlando, um, on that note, Orlando came very very close to being the very first you know free agency super team, you know, ten years before Miami did it. Uh, they had all this cap space that they cleared out. Uh, they had already signed Tracy McGrady, uh, from, who had wanted out from Toronto. Uh, Grant Hill was next on the list, and one of the reasons Grant signed was because they had room after that for a third max slot, which they were offering Tim Duncan. And they came very, very close to getting Tim Duncan. Uh, he, he was really on the fence, believe it or not. So uh, they, they signed uh, T-Mac, and then they signed Grant Hill, and it looked like they were going to get Tim Duncan, and they didn't. But 
to clear cap space for that, um, they did it. They worked out a sign and trade uh, with the Pistons, where Grant Hill would get that seven-year, uh, ninety-two million dollar max, and then the Pistons uh, traded him to Orlando. In exchange, Orlando sent back uh, Chucky Atkins, who was their backup point guard, and a uh, center by the name of Ben Wallace. Who, again, he was a free agent at that point, so maybe it would have been a sign-in trade anyway. But either way, I, from that point, at this point you're looking at the, the, two, the situations of these two teams. Uh, the Pistons have now built a team, a mediocre team, around one a singular superstar, and they've lost him, and they have no cap space to begin with. And you're thinking, oh, my God, it's going to take them forever to rebuild. This just crushes them. And meanwhile, Grant Hill goes to Orlando. Uh, even without Duncan, they have Tracy McGrady. They have Mike Miller as a lottery pick. It, look, it looks like this is a team that could be competing for the finals year after year. And, you know, the, the dark cloud that was with the Pistons just followed Hill to Orlando. Uh, yeah, so Grant Hill just... Uh, I'm going to summarize quickly. Uh, Grant Hill's tenure uh, after Detroit uh, going into Orlando, he had five ankle surgeries in five seasons. Uh, His ankle was so badly uh, mangled that they kept having to surgically repair it because every time he'd try to come back, it would would break again. Uh, He was limited to just four games that first season in Orlando. He was still voted into the All-Star game. That's how popular he was. just 14 games in 2002. Uh, the third surgery uh, after he, he played 29 and 03. Uh, but the big thing there is it, the surgery that he had that season uh, nearly killed him. He had a staph infection, which caused him to miss the entire 2004 season. And this is the sad, um, the sad irony is that 04 season Grand Hill doesn't play for Orlando. Uh, Orlando finishes with the worst record in the league, and from his couch, he gets to watch the Detroit Pistons win the NBA championship. Yep. So, uh, in in 2005, to his credit, he makes a comeback season. Uh, he averaged about 20 points. He was voted in by the fans as an All-Star. And then 06, he had groin surgery. And again, the Orlando me- the Orlando media was kind of mean to him as well because at this point. Uh, he went from being called soft in Detroit to be called being called soft in Orlando, where they were basically saying, "Okay, maybe you're you're hurt, maybe you're uh, not, maybe whatever, but you know you're making all of this money. You're one of the highest paid players in the league, and you've done nothing for us for five years. You know wh- why did we why did we bring you here?" So his very last season in Orlando, uh, Grand Hill is finally healthy. Uh, he he gets Orlando to the playoffs with a young Dwight Howard. And, of course, who do you think he, he Orlando sees in the first round that season in a 1-8 matchup? It's the Pistons. And Grant Hill actually plays well, uh, but he is, unfortunately, he's, I think he's outplayed a little bit by Tayshaun Prince, who the Pistons drafted to replace him. And, you know, Orlando is swept out of the first round. So his last year in Orlando mirrors almost perfectly his last year in Detroit. Um, he there's actually the Pistons tried to bring him back in uh, 
Well, there was talk that the Pistons had strong interest in bringing Grant Hill back in that offseason for 2008, which would have been fantastic. I think I would have loved that. But I think that there was still I – don't, I don't think Grant Hill, at the very least, was – you know, comfortable coming back, or at least, as he put it him, himself, he wasn't going to put on that Pistons jersey if he couldn't be this the same guy anymore. I don't know if that was his real reason or not, but th- there was an attempt made to bring him back, and he decided on Phoenix instead. And he finally uh, has his first taste of playoff success in 2010. At age 37, he starts on a Phoenix team that uh, came within a couple games of making the finals. Uh, so that's, in a lot of ways, that is a great comeback story. Uh, that I don't, I don't know if you'll ever see that where a guy misses just year after year after year, misses six years off of his prime, and then comes back to become a serviceable player in his late thirties. Um, yep, yeah, and he 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 missed barely any games in Phoenix. He was finally healthy. He was playing all the time. Uh, it, it was, I think, a lot around the league. It was really nice to see. I know, I, I for one, was rooting for him in 2010. Sure. So the, um, yeah, the, the the Grant Hill, his entire career, but really the, the Pistons specifically, uh, very much of a, a kind of a Greek tragedy. Uh, not really his fault. Uh, misfortune just kind of followed him everywhere. I still, in my opinion, I still think he's the best forward that's ever worn the the jersey, and I think I, I know fans today are still bitter at him. I, I think because the, I, I, he and the teal uh, jerseys are kind of intertwined, where people look at the teal jerseys and they think of you know the first round failures, and they look at Grant Hill and they think of the first round failures. Uh, but if people could just look at it objectively, he was the most dominant forward the team has ever had. And I really would like to see uh, number 33 get raised to the rafters someday. And I know the Pistons kind of put themselves behind the eight ball because they kind of already have too many numbers retired. But it's kind of hard to look up and see some of the guys up there that weren't nearly as good as Grant Hill. Um, yeah. So uh, that, that, that's kind of, you know, the best summary I can give you of, of Grant Hill's career. Um, wonderful player. Uh, reinvented himself several times, uh, did whatever it was asked for him to help the team win. Uh, just, just really, really unlucky. I, I, I can't say it any uh, more succinct than that. And so that kind of takes the Pistons into the going to work Pistons as Keith kind of, you know, gave us the preface into. And if you want to check that out, you can go back and listen to the two part episode 35, um, where we got into all of that, um, moving forward, um, you know, Keith, thank you so much. You know, I hope you guys, the listeners, enjoy it. Just, you know, I, I've said before on that episode 35, you can go to Wikipedia and look up some of this stuff, but you can't get to the storytelling and the insights and the way Keith tells this. And that's why I enjoy having him on. And I want to have him back on again. We've still missed a couple other areas, eras, excuse me, through all of this, kind of the 60s through the 80s, and then from the end of the going to work Pistons up until now. And so I want to do that again as well. But Keith, I just want to thank you for taking us down that journey again. I just love the way you do it. I I just become a listener while we're recording. You know, I just sit here and love it um, and just listen. So thank you so much. And, and I hope you you will come back again. And I want to give you a chance to plug where you're at on social media and any content for the listeners to find you. 
All right. Um, right now on social media, uh, my Twitter account is uh, charlatan28, C-H-A-R-L-O-T-T-E-A-N 28. Uh, I do a lot of historic NBA content, most of it Pistons related, where I'll, I'll put out videos every now and then. It's sporadic during the off season, but once the season starts again, I usually do, you know, on this day, such and such, this happened, and I'll, I'll do a little video summary. Um, I'm also in the Spotify locker room, usually right now for uh, Mondays and Thursdays with Duncan Smith at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, at 3 p.m., uh, I do a little segment where I try to tell a, tell a story about NBA history through uh, trivia. Yeah, that, and those Spotify green rooms are awesome. I, I Now that school has started, I haven't been able to. I need to talk these guys into moving them to Saturdays, but those are really fun if you can make those. And again, Keith, uh, I mean, I know you say I'm too kind, but, but Keith is the Detroit Pistons historian in my book. Um, and I've enjoyed to get to know him. I enjoy, like I said, I enjoyed getting to sit down with him at a summer league game and talk to him and the interactions we have. So again, Keith, just thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. This, is, this was a lot of fun. Absolutely. So this was just one of many times I hope to have him back on the podcast. As I said, there are still many more years of Pistons history. And once we get through all of those, I want to start going through some NBA history with him as well. Next episode will be episode 50 for Motor City Hoops. And I'll be joined by two first-time guests that are a couple guys I really appreciate. And I'll explain that more of the beginning of that episode that's going to drop the end of this week. As always, thank you to everyone listening, reading, watching, and supporting Motor City Hoops in any way. It's appreciated more than I can say and special shout out to a couple new ratings and to Michigan David for the review we will talk to you soon thank you for listening to this episode of the Motor City Hoops podcast please give us a rating drop a review and subscribe for more content including video breakdowns make sure you follow us at Motor City Hoops on Twitter I hope you join us next episode until then be safe and be well